Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Comparing Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host... McGill. It is episode 64, and uh, I'm finally sort of settling back to normal after a, two episodes that were pretty jam-packed um, after what was basically, I mean... You know, I had uh, my act, which was just two parts, uh, wherein there was tons of time travel and all sorts of stuff, Far Realms adventures. And then um, right after that, there was the intro to the next act, which is a pretty big deal. So only after all of those sort of big moments am I finally uh, settling down with a good old-fashioned op, Operation Time Husk. And what have you got? For I us? was, I was honestly wondering if uh, this next act were all going to be just crazy, epic length adventures like we've been going. You know, uh, unbeknownst to me, like this whole campaign has been escalating exponentially, and now that we're into the later acts, things were just going to keep getting bigger and bigger. But I guess not. I guess those are more interim things. Yeah, I, I think it's generally when you're doing one of the big transitions between acts or something, but uh, we'll see. On my end, in the fe- the fate of Istus, the destiny of Istus, the fe- the festiny of Istus <sighs> campaign from Greyhawk, um, the players are still on their way to the free city of Greyhawk, and they're making a stop off in the town of Purnell which was foreshadowed in the last adventure. Yeah, do we just want to jump right into it? Do you want to go first? Sure. All right. So, um, to do a quick recap... Oh, I guess I'll uh, say it's uh, it's June 8th, 2021, for anybody who cares. Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) Got to get that in there. So, this campaign, uh, my players were only able to meet once a month. We were only able to do one session a month. So I started every document I have. I did a separate document for each adventure and every document I have begins with a recap. So in case anybody has forgotten, uh, the the summary of events so far are that the players found the I just want to say that I've only just recently started like keeping documents for all my things uh because of google drive the real thing is that like for a long time i had been typing out segments that i was running in my games and then i just been like deleting them but then i realized that like i was going back and doing enough of these scenarios that like man i i wish i hadn't deleted all that text i could just copy paste it (laughs) do a little bit of alteration it's funny because uh i've hinted before on the show there are probably like two or three campaigns of mine from the distant past that are completely lost and in part they're lost because the laptop that i had them on the hard drive just like fractured into pieces and was unrecoverable which was very uh disappointing but also uh i feel like the time when I started taking really meticulous campaign notes coincides with uh, the time that I started working as a data management technician for a video production studio. So uh, that that job, 
yeah, that job clearly like hammered into my head the need for multiple backups and documenting everything. Uh, lessons that have stuck with me to this day. Um, so to recap, the players found the Stormhorn, this magical artifact thought lost the sand sands of time. Uh, they attempted to assassinate a barbarian king and failed miserably. And then as they were riding away, they were plagued by strange hallucinatory advertisements and presided over a witch trial uh, that was related to the source of those magic pop-up ads. And they solved and now, it, but those dang scammers got away. That's right, the scammers got away. Um, and so they rode on, uh, heading towards the city of Greyhawk, and stopped for the night uh, about three days outside of Mistwood, their last location. And I wanted to keep the players on their toes a little bit, because by this point, they, we had fallen into this rhythm where they arrive at a place, they have an encounter, they ride away, and then they set up camp and go to sleep. And uh, much like in a lot of RPG video games, like going to sleep was like, you know, it's the long rest and it's just sort of like a save point and nothing happens. And I wanted to sort of keep them on their toes a bit. So what I did is uh, this time uh, Eric is on. I mean, first in fairness, watch. in fairness, last time they had pop up ads in their dreams. So it's not like you haven't been spicing up the long rest experience. That's true. That's true. Um but in that case, it was like seeding the plot of the adventure. This time, I just had it that uh, Eric wakes up, and Sir Lars was the last person on watch, and Eric looks over, and Lars like puts a finger to his lips, and he's slowly drawing his, drawing his broadsword, and uh, Eric looks around, and the biggest wild boar he's ever seen is lumbering around the camp, like sniffing everybody. And it stops next to Stash, and starts rooting around under Stash, biggie, eating biggie, all the biggie, nuts biggie, that biggie. fall out of her pack. And uh, so I wanted to like give the players just like this instant encounter. They're waking up and there is a potential threat in the middle of their camp. And uh, I had assumed potential it was just going to be... Well, exactly. So I assumed... Piggy, pig, 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 pig. <laughs> they were going to fight this thing. And in my notes, I is there's even evidence of this presumption because the next part in my notes talks about them roasting the boar and then pulling out a map and uh, and like charting their next stop. But no, that's not what they did. Stash woke up and immediately used animal handling to befriend the the wild yeah. boar using the nuts as like uh, a me a treat, a means of winning it over. And the boar would become Stash's mount, and she named it Snort. So ah. Snort the boar became a part of the party. Piggy pig pig. Piggy pig pig indeed. And so uh, they start the fire for breakfast, and Stash is feeding Snort, and they go over the map uh, of Earth, Earth, Orth, <laughs> Orth, I think it was the one we came down on, uh, charting their course to Greyhawk. And Lars says, well, we're, we're almost at Purnell. We should reach there by lunchtime. 
and it's the perfect place to find a merchant who can smuggle us into Vlekstad, where we can then get on a ship. Probably our fastest way back to Greyhawk, even though we have to go around the coast, at least we'd be unimpeded. And uh, so I had everybody roll uh, just like really low level, with like low DC wisdom checks to see if they remembered where they'd heard of Purnell before. And Purnell was in one of the pop-up ads. I remember. Uh, it was in the, yeah, the political smear ad from uh, Hilarious Valen, who was making a, a run for mayor of Purnell and blaming Bromdrom Ironhold for all sorts of awful things that have recently happened. Uh, he dug a well to help the water supply, but awakened a blight ooze that killed half the town's livestock. Uh, he put up protective barricades around Purnell, but only after the town had already been attacked by a troll horde. And uh, so they they remember this, and I also uh, let them roll history to see if anybody, you know, knows anything about Purnell. Uh, so Purnell is this mining town founded by dwarves and gnomes many centuries ago, and it's built around one of the area's most bountiful silver mines. And the mine has continued to yield silver ore ever since it was discovered with no sign of stopping. Over the years, many have speculated that the silver is replenished due to magical radiation beneath the ground, but this was never confirmed. And because of the silver mine, Purnell is a frequent stop for merchants traveling through the northern reaches. It's the second busiest hub in the area after Vlekstad. And uh, they can't, in case you're wondering, they can't go directly to Vlekstad because Relt Seavord will probably have people looking for them in that area because it's the northern capital and the seat of his power. So their, plan, so their plan is to get in with a merchant that's passing through Purnell, who can then smuggle them into Vlekstad and, uh, so they can go undetected by the barbarian lord they pissed off. And then they'll be able to get on board a ship and head around the coast down to the area near Greyhawk. So I guess this would have been a lot easier if they hadn't tried to assassinate Relt Seavor. So much easier. <laughs> I may have, like, I often when I outline a campaign, I have these big sort of bottleneck points. It's uh, I think I've talked about this before, how I sort of plan it out a bit like, uh, like those Telltale Games adventures, like the Walking Dead serial game or the Wolf or Wolf Among Us uh, or Tales from the Borderlands, where there are bottleneck points in the plot that the players will absolutely always hit. But how they get there, I make it a little more modular so I can like shuffle the pieces around a bit. So I had always intended for them to hear about Purnell in the in session, you know, the previous session where they adjudicate over a witch trial. But it wouldn't necessarily be the next place they stop. Uh, had they not tried to assassinate Relt Seavord, I probably would have sort of switched things around a bit. So maybe they went to Purnell later. Or maybe they just had a, a different way of heading down. You know, I wouldn't have introduced this idea of getting smuggled into Vlakstad. But like um, my my overall impression is that the big goal at this point is to get to the city of Greyhawk, right? Correct. So that's like that's like goal number one. If this if I divided this campaign into acts, that would be the end of act one is them getting to Greyhawk. So what is the what is driving them to go to Purnell? They need, they, they believe that the fastest way to get to Greyhawk is to get on a ship. 
and the closest place that they'd be able to get on a ship is Vlekstad. But they can't just walk into Vlekstad because they are now wanted there by the right. barbarian lord. And Purnell is the second biggest trading hub in the region. So they're going to Purnell yeah. because they're close to it, and they figure they can get in with some merchants who will hide them like in their cart or something and smuggle them into Vlekstad where they can get on a ship. Got it. So you got to smuggle to smuggle to get to the place. Correct. <laughs> um, so as they're heading to Purnell, they're seeing more carts and travelers, merchants, mercenaries and adventurers. Uh, there's a troop of bards and a big coach that, you know, calls out to them as they pass. Like, come see our, our play in Purnell. You'll love it. No, Don't worry. Go this is away. not. Leave me alone. <laughs> Don't worry. This is not the sixfold trials again. Um, after about an hour, picked up a goblin traveling, and the goblin's <laughs> like, eh, "Get out of here!" Um, after about an hour, they arrive at uh, this like sloping taiga, like a shallow bowl, and at the center, flanked on three sides by big spires of rock, is the mining town of Purnell. There is a big wall around the town with uh, towers and chimneys and silos peeking over the top. Guard turrets are on top of the wall, and you can see minecart rails that spiral around the rock formations. And then beyond Purnell is the this massive mountain range. And the players notice right away that like this is a mining town, but there are no sounds of machinery. There's no steam or smoke, nothing to indicate that mining is going on. They approach the town and they notice that it is surrounded by a number of tents that are pitched along the edge of the wall outside the main gates. And dwarf beggars are standing on either side of the road, hands outstretched, they wear filthy clothes. Uh, when they arrive at the gates, there are two elves on the wall above the doors. And one holds a clipboard and the other has a crossbow. And the elves sort of, you know, ask what their business is there. And when they notice Eric, they immediately deny him entry because no dwarves are allowed within the city limits by order of Hilarious Valen. And the guard will not be swayed. They refuse entry to Eric. And the party sort of kicks up a fuss. And then they decide, okay, fine. None of you get to come in. They deny the whole party entry to Purnell. Who's this damn One elf the... done took over Gnome Dwarf Town? That's did exactly happen? what happened. How did it happen? Well, they're approached by one of the dwarf beggars, and he introduced himself as the mayor of Purnell, Bromdrom Ironhold, and the guards go, former mayor, and they laugh at him. And uh, Ironhold apologizes for the situation, and he explains, uh, Purnell was plagued by this rash of unfortunate events, the trolls, the blight ooze that attacked and killed three cows. But the most devastating thing that happened... The papa bads. <laughs> no, it's that the silver mine dried up, leaving the town without its primary resource and means of income. Many citizens fell into poverty, and Ironhold's political contender, the ruthless elf named Valen, took full advantage of these events, smeared his name, demanded he step down from his position as mayor. Uh, Valen led this massive mudslinging campaign against Ironhold and put himself forward as a candidate for mayor, easily toppling his opponent. And then, right away, Valen blamed the idiocy of the dwarves for everything that transpired. 
And most notably, he said, like, Purnell is too dependent on the mine, and yet the dwarves couldn't foresee when it was going to run out of silver. Uh, so he set this new law and banned all dwarves from Purnell. So the dwarves are starving and impoverished. A number of them live along the wall in the hopes that these merchants will take pity on them. Uh, others, unbeknownst to the players at this point, uh, have taken up residence in the old silver mine, which they access through this secret entrance outside the town walls. Um, so the players decide that they need to do a bit of reconnaissance inside the town uh, to see like what's going on and if they're going to be able to find a way to, you know, smuggle, uh, get some merchants to smuggle them to Blackstad, something like that. So uh, I believe it was Sir Lars and Maeve are decide like, okay, everybody else, you guys wait here. We're going to go in and scout this place out. They manage to, you know, use diplomacy roles to smooth talk the guards and say like, we're not going to bring the dwarf in our party inside, just us. We just need to, we just want to see what's going on and buy some supplies. So they manage to talk their way in. Purnell is this like ugly town built around a crossroads in the center of the three spires. All the buildings are like boxy made of stone and wooden iron. There are tall chimneys, smithies, small scale refineries, forges. All the citizens' homes are like utilitarian, bare of decorations. And uh, all the signage is iconographic. So no words. It's like there's a pickaxe hanging over one door. There's the sign of a well, of an anvil, of a soup pot. And they just get like the basic tour and learn a lot of the stuff that I laid out for you. You know, the mine has dried up uh, and a few of the citizens who they talk to and like ask about the dwarves, a lot of the citizens aren't as prejudiced against the dwarves as the ruling class. And it's one of those just sort of random citizens that they talk to who indicates like, yeah, you know, and I hear there are still a number of dwarves taking up residence in the mines. I just wanted so, to say that I think I also used that whole pictograph sign method when we were playing uh, Crimes Against the Faith. Do you remember? Yeah, that's right. The Stinky Fish Diner. That's right. And, uh, oh, there was a, well, the Howling Wolf, but the wolf looks kind of like a pig. Yeah. Um, so after scoping out, uh, and after scoping out Purnell, uh, Maeve and Lars are going to return to the party, but the part the others, uh, Hulka and Eric have been, and Stash have been talking to the dwarves outside and they learn sort of more about their plight. The dwarves outside the town walls are families, you know, hoping that merchants traveling to Purnell will take pity on them. A lot of the families live in the mines along with uh, the dwarven mages who in this region have magic beards. And the, the beard magic is sort of the, the most flavorful part of this particular adventure. Um, and so when Maeve and Lars, you know, return from their scouting, uh, Eric makes a plea to them and says, like, I think we really need to help these dwarves. Like, clearly this is a bad situation. And I really think that that we have a certain responsibility to help if we can. Maeve being a paladin agrees. And you may recall that Eric, part of his character motivation is he wants to be something of a folk hero. And he sees this as like a perfect opportunity to become a folk hero for the dwarves. 
So they decide that they're going to hire a couple of dwarf guides to lead them into the mines, and maybe they'll be able to see, like, what is going on with the mines drying up, and if nothing else, it also gives them a, a sort of a back entrance into Purnell. So they hire the two best dwarf guides that they can find, a father-son duo named Rosag and Tarfin, and Rosag and Tarfin are beard wizards. And so they, the dwarves lead them into the mines <clears throat> and explain that uh, the rock of the mine walls has become completely void of silver, and it started to become brittle in this way that the dwarves have never encountered before. Like, you know, a simple tap and it sort of crushes in your, in your hand, uh, almost like, like a kind of sandstone or something. Uh, the players explore the mines further, and I have a, a sort of a mine map going is it, on. Are there NPCs that suspect that the elf is behind this? Yes. Okay. Uh, there, there's a lot of suspicion. However, I will say that uh, one of the things that I have noted down that was important to me is that... Uh, the let me see I, I know i wrote it down well, i can't find my exact wording on it but uh valen won legitimately that's the one thing i wanted to yeah here we go valen did not cheat in any way he won fair and square he's just an evil bastard and uh i wanted that to be sort of a key thing here they suspect that he like cheated stole the election or was somehow behind these awful events he wasn't He's just a bad dude. Um, the actual cause of the mind drying up was Umber Hulks. Uh, I was going to uh, guess Zorn. Oh, yeah. Zorn could have done it, too. No, it was Umber Hulks. So uh, I had a, a map of a mine laid out, and the players you know, explored it, sort of dungeon crawl style. And the two major things... That are three major things that happened, I should say. One is <clears throat> they, you know, go deep into the mines and their way out, the, the way behind them, is cut off when the tunnel collapses as two Umber Hulks burst out. And so they have combat with Umber Hulks. Umber Hulks being like a favorite monster of mine from when I was first introduced to DD. I don't know what it was, the idea of these giant sort of crab bugs that eat rock, but. Uh, it really captured my imagination very early they on. They can make your yeah, brain right. all messed up. Yeah, they can scramble your brain. And boy, do they always make for interesting encounters. Uh, this was a really fun one, as I recall. Lots of, you know, players getting disoriented. and uh, But thankfully, they had these two beard wizards with them. And I can't remember where... I think it might have been the D&D Behind the Screen subreddit. It was somewhere on the internet that I found... The uh, the concept of dwarf beard magic. This is some homebrew thing that somebody cooked up. And so uh, the way the beard magic works is the dwarves have these beads braided into their beards. And the different beads allow them to cast different beard-based spells. So here, uh, I might as well go right now since we're talking about it. Here are uh, the beard spells that these guys have access to. Uh, there is the beard of rope. Once per long or short rest, the beard owner may use an action to enlarge and spin their beard into a woven rope of up to 50 feet. 
Uh, it lasts for up to one hour, and it's treated like a magical variant of Silk Rope from the player's handbook. At the end of the effect's duration, the rope unwinds and shrinks down to normal beard shape and size. If it's severed, it just shrivels and turns to dust. The Beard of the Revenant. On the death of the beard's owner, the beard wrenches itself back to life, detaches itself in a rage, and hunts down the creature that caused the owner's death. Uh, there are some basic stats for an angry beard here. And as an attack action, it can make a melee attack of 1d6 plus 2 bludgeoning damage to a target within 5 feet. It has a challenge rating of half. Did you ever watch the cartoon The Tick? Yeah. Have you seen the episode where he gets a mustache and it has a mind of its own? Very much so. And there's a beard. It's great. Yep. Um, so beard. The beard... The Beard of Holding. The beard may be treated as a variant of the Bag of Holding. Objects are removed or placed within the beard like uh, at the base of the chin, and you just reach into your beard and you can pull things out. Items removed after being stored for at least one day are scratchy if worn or handled and sh shed smell, uh, small hairs. Uh, the Beard of the Bear. The bear may use an action to magically enlarge and spin their beard around themselves until they have taken on the appearance of a short brown bear. This takes five minutes to complete, has the duration of an hour, and while the effect is active, the owner is nestled in their original form within the beer beard, or the bear beard. They retain their stats and skills, uh, and then at the DM's discretion, dexterous action may have to be rolled with disadvantage because the owner's hands are now hairy bear paws. It looks cool, though. I, I don't like the idea that you have to to spin it into bear takes five minutes. That's five minutes of spinning into bear. Just spin into bear, man. True enough. Uh, I did not create Tasmanian these beard Devil spells. I, I, think, I think the idea here is that uh, because it gives you sort of like a, a, a it, it makes you look like a bear, they wanted to make it something that you have to think of doing ahead of time. Um. And then uh, a few more here. The Beard of Feathers, once prolonged rest as a reaction while falling, the beard may, uh, owner may magically enlarge and spin their beard into a parachute shape so that they have a feather fall. So once per long rest, you can have a, a feather fall ability. The Beard of Sogginess, once per long rest, the beard owner may use an action to magically weave their beard over their mouth and nose, and uh, they can breathe underwater using it capture a big air bubble and uh, for one hour and then finally the beard of lunch provided the beard owner has had a hearty meal within the last day once per long rest they can pull pieces of their lunch out of their beard and uh, eat them to remove one level of exhaustion this may be they may perform this action twice per long rest if within the last day they attended a feast that has at least 20 participants so the beard casters go with them. They encounter a couple of umber hulks and fight, and uh, they manage to defeat these umber hulks. Uh, in the process, though, uh, the the other um, like the two umber hulks cause another cave in, and behind a collapsed part of the mine wall, the players find this steamwork vehicle that was created by gnomes long ago for the purposes of mining and seems to have just sort of fallen into neglect back there. And uh, I would definitely go for a beard of banishment, like a beard that I can swallow people up into and then they're trapped in the beard. 
Oh yeah. Well, there's a lot of, there are a lot of potential ideas for like, these are just the ones that I found pre-made, but you could have like a beard of tentacles, you know, where you can use the beard as like an appendage or a whip. Uh, definitely, definitely a lot of potential for beard magic. But yeah, so they find this like steamwork vehicle uh, abandoned long ago by gnomes that worked in the mines. And their two guides are just sort of in awe of this because they've heard of these machines, but they they were never they never saw one in person, and they refer to it as a mechanical boulette. And the idea is that it's it's this big sort of drill like digging machine uh, that digs through the earth at great speed, and the players are instantly like, "This is the ideal way for us to get back to Greyhawk quickly if we can figure out how to power it." And so they venture further into the mines. And, wait, uh, wait, did you, another... you said to get to Greyhawk quickly. Yeah. They're going to go under the ocean? No. Uh, so it's hard to visualize, but uh, basically they were thinking of getting on a ship and going around the coast, which is sort of like the long route to get to Greyhawk, but they can do it unimpeded. They won't run into like any town guards or anything like that. Um, they were just thinking, like, it's not the most direct route, but it is sort of the most unimpeded route. But this time... So there's thinking, not okay, actually a body of water between them and Greyhawk. It's just that would have been uh, a detour. Correct. Okay. Yeah, correct. So so rather than go around the coast, they're thinking now, let's dig our way inland because this mechanical boulette supposedly will go faster than their horses Mac underground. And once again... They will be unimpeded in their travel. They won't run into anybody like, you know, any barbarians looking for them or anything like that. So they go, this is going to be the ideal way that we can do it if we can figure out how to power it. And so they venture further into the mines and explore some more, have a few more encounters with one more Umber Hulk that I'd thrown in just for some flavor. And... Uh, they the deeper they go into the mines, the hotter it's getting, and finally they find a small colony of magmans. And so they have this bright idea to use the uh the beard of holding magic to subdue a magman and then like hold it magically, and they bring it back and chuck it into the furnace of the mechanical boulette. Oh man. Magman driven boulette. Yeah. Uh, so they have their magman-driven digging machine now, and they're really delighted by that. And how uh, did you play the magman? Like how how much personality did you give it? Uh, I didn't really give it too much of a personality. Just like sort of the way you play like a hyperactive goblin, lots of like <laughs> like have it sort of jump around. It's, it's really crazy. It's not necessarily malicious, but it's mischievous. But so as is, long as they does can it, keep feeding it like coal and stuff, it seems really happy. So it likes to be in the, the I was wondering about the ethical dilemma of using the magmen as like slave labor for the boulette. No, it's, it's really happy in there. And I'm trying to remember... The name of it. I can't remember the name of this book, but I had this picture book when I was a kid that uh, the story was uh, it was this guy, this like farmer in England who finds a dragon's egg and it hatches and he's got this baby dragon, but the dragon 
it seems like it's dying. Like he doesn't know how to take care of it. It doesn't seem like it's eating anything. And then the final solution that he comes up with is he takes to a rail yard and the dragon loves living in the belly of a steam locomotive. And so I took a lot of inspiration from that and had this idea where it's like the Magvin loves being in this furnace and it loves eating all of the fuel that they give it. So it's really happy to help them power this mechanical boulette. Um, in taking out the Umber Hulks, the players are able to restore access to the mines and restore the flow of silver. Uh, they, the further down they go, the more silver they discover. And after taking out the Umber Hulks, it seems like, like this is the solution to their problems. The Umber Hulks are the ones creating the brittle, uh, the brittle rock and ruining the mine for everybody. Um, they, it, it's obviously, it's sort of going to be something that goes on behind the scenes, but they report this back to Brom Drom Ironhold. And he's like, you know, this is, this is the, the thing that could very well turn the tide in helping restore Purnell. And it give, certainly gives him enough, uh, I guess you could call it like social ammunition to mount a comeback. And the, the players are celebrated as heroes for restoring the mine. And Eric is also sort of, he you know, starts his, on his path to becoming a folk hero among the dwarves. And as a way of thanking them, uh, and Eric in particular, he is given... The beard of the beard of rope bead from Tarfin's beard. So he now has uh, a use of uh, rope beard spell once per short or long rest. Interesting. So the players all clamber into their new digging machine and burrow into the dirt and set off on their journey once again. Did Eric? Did Eric try for a different bead at all, or was he just cool with that one? He just he accepted whatever whatever they wanted to give him. He was way more after just the reputation of being a hero. I would have been after that uh, bead of holding, let me tell you. It's very useful, admittedly. So, that's the end of yours. Burrowing right. off. Meanwhile, I got Operation Time Husk. Okay back up a bit this campaign al's aces al samasath head of the al's aces al he uh he's been taken over for odium odium's missing the real head of the empok but some point in the empok's history when the empok was doing battle with the nightside eclipse it was realized that the nightside eclipse sort of system is just like you know, when you take out one of the liches at the top, it just gets replaced by a vampire that was at the rung below it in the ladder. And then, like, beneath that, you've got other undead. And so there's this problem of, like, every time you kill one of them, they get replaced. And so, historically, we've learned that the Empok had a solution to this called the Crimson Chambers, which were uh, basically a prison made of these uh, tanks of crimson fluid where undead could be suspended in, like held in suspended animation so that the Nightside Eclipse system would not replace them, basically. They would not be like identified as destroyed and therefore replaced. So 
Alsamasath, running the Empok in Odium's absence, he's been looking for ways that he can sort of take charge with the Empok. Like, basically, he doesn't know, you know, he doesn't have the vision that Odium previously had for fighting the Nightside Eclipse as the Empok. And so when he rediscovers the idea of the Crimson Chambers, he's like, all right, I can do this. I could we can run the like crimson chambers part two and then i'll be able to like continue the my my responsibilities as head of the empoc uh in that capacity by like initiating this crimson chambers uh operation so um at this point the crimson chambers version two have been constructed and where do you think we've constructed them mcgill um a very obvious place in drail goblin town no some place that didn't exist originally and then it did exist the octopus no the crimson tower of course where else the crimson chambers will be in the crimson tower crimson tower and their first uh, occupant is uh, Nadia, the vampire queen who they found remaining in the old Crimson Chambers, which had been largely destroyed. And so they have taken her tank, transferred her to the Crimson Tower, and uh, they're using, they're sort of reverse engineering the technology from around there to recreate these new Crimson Chambers. Meanwhile, situation on the Arctopus, as we left off, um, they've beaten Carmen the Prairie Hag and her uh, weird sort of experimental program to create mutant troll minotaurs uh, to serve her as shock troops. And so now the main the bulk of the Nightside Eclipse army or invasion force has been scattered across the Arctopus because they were launching north in an invasion fleet and then the octopus just showed up in their path and they just ended up like all shipwrecked across this huge um like cephalopod landmass basically and so um since the last episode we've learned that the nightside eclipse uh army has basically started fortifying all their shipwrecks like the shipwrecks have been forced to like the crews have fortified those places as if they were just like makeshift fortresses on the Arctopus, uh, where they got washed up. And, um, using this knowledge, the MPOC is like, all right, we're going to be able to hunt down. Like we just need to figure out which shipwrecks have which leaders in them. And then we'll be able to hunt them down and then we can add them to the new Crimson Chambers program. Um, So in order to track down their first uh, target, they managed to uh, hunt down a messenger that is traveling between the wrecks doing sort of like, um, you know, uh, acting as like a courier in the field, basically, like delivering intel and information from one sort of fortified shipwreck to another um so the players come across this mage that is riding a wyvern 
and is accompanied by two elite Nightside Eclipse agents. Uh, they may have actually been those. Um, I'm not sure, but they they might have been those like uh, autumn leaves, you know, the anti empoc agents that the Nightside Eclipse has uh, created that I mentioned. It's pretty intimidating. It's uh, also evocative of like the ring wraiths in the the later two of the Lord of the Rings movies, where they ride on those. I don't know what they're supposed to be in the uh, in the continuity of Middle Earth, but they're basically wyverns. Well, I'll tell you what else is the mage is riding a wyvern, and he's got these two uh, guys as backup, and then they've also got a cannabis corpse, marijuana. It's, well, a big old, it's a big old reptile uh, cannabis corpse creature. Better oh, wait, watch out slithering around. What's that? Does that fly? No, no, no. Only the mage is on the wyvern, but uh, he's like traveling with sort of like backup. The The marijuana slithers around between the crystals of the octopus, and then these, uh, these two other Nightside Eclipse elite troops will uh, back him up. It always amuses me how, like, your campaign is not what I would describe as tongue-in-cheek. But then every now and again, <laughs> there's, like, there's a frozen banana stand or a weed joke. I mean, uh, it's just a cannabis corpse monster. I don't know what to tell you. Ain't no joke about this. There are um, a lot of cannabis corpse monsters. I'll tell you what else, though, and this is funny because it's something that you, as a player, have just run into yourself, is this was the first time that I introduced an Arctoboulette, which you uh, faced oh, hey. as a crystalline boulette, but right. either way, the idea is that there are boulettes that are uh, native to the Arctopus that have crystalline hides, like crystals growing out of their armored hides. Um, and it's funny because... You know, I was looking at this. This is sort of like a big picture thing is. I when I so. I use these like, for for example, this is um, for this operation, I was using uh, the DDEX uh, 12, no, 13 DDEX 113. That's the 13th episode of the first season of Adventurers League. And that is um, Pools of Radiant, uh, uh, Pool of Radiance Resurgent, which is all in, in and of itself like a big um, callback to some old classic like D&D role playing games. But like like uh, like computer role playing games, I mean, rather. Uh, but the thing is, like, when I use these Adventures League products to as, like, uh, fodder for my um, campaign, I don't. It's like I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't vet them. Like I don't search through them. Like I don't read through them very carefully ahead of time. I sort of just like I say, okay, I'm going to use episodes blank through blank for this act. And then I do. And whatever's in the Adventures League modules, that's just like I tailor it to go with what I'm doing in my campaign. But what I've realized is that 
through sheer happenstance, this has ended up working out like on such a sort of like serendipity for me, uh, which is something I really like as a dungeon master when everything just kind of falls into place like that. Like basically I ran um, this adventure with Al's aces and it was the one it, like I chose to have this adventure on this act, which was an octopus act. And so this was the one where when the adventure had a boulette in it, I said, okay, there's going to be an Arcto Boulette and that'll be that that'll be that thing's place in this campaign. But then the next campaign in a completely different act that I am running, I ran the adventure that I am using as the basis for the game that you're playing in, where you have just encountered what is effectively an Arcto Boulette. And the funny thing is, is like... So so you you played that encounter. It's the idea of like a boulette um nest. It's like it's called like the love yeah. nest and it's it's a boulette mating ritual. And the thing Filled is with powdered bone. The fact that that adventure happened to land in the act I put it in which was also an octopus adventure and then like it creates such an unintentional sort of um, through line between the two campaigns, I feel like. Like, I established uh, Arctoboulettes in this adventure, and then there wasn't really a big boulette encounter in one of the adventures for ages and ages. But then it just so happened that when I did pull an adventure that had a boulette encounter in it, it was an octopus act again. <laughs> what do you think of that? That's just like, it's just something that jumps out at me is like, man, what are the odds that the adventures I would pick would just happen to perfectly end up fitting into that octopus setting that I've created? Downright serendipitous. It's, it, it's all I can think is like, you know, some uh, interconnectedness of the universe, uh, synchronicity, yeah, and well, you're talking kind of about thing. a a boulette thing, and I was just talking about a boulette thing. That too. Anyways, um, and the other reason it is so uh, it jumps out at me so much is so they have this encounter with an Arcto boulette, and then in the next campaign, as I've said, and then you've also had this encounter. There's another Arcto boulette campaign, but then also in those the two adventures also have something in, in common in that both of them, when I ran them had side squatch appearances and that is completely just like serendipitous. And the connection there is that in the adventure that I used this time, there is a giant who the idea is like, um, so in the Pools of Radiance, this old classic D&D adventure, there's basically a malevolent entity called Tyrant Thraxis that can like, um, it possesses a vessel when it wants to wreak havoc. And so in this adventure, the players come across like sort of a gentle hill giant who has suddenly become possessed by Tyrant Thraxis and they have to deal with this. But by complete sheer coincidence... The adventure that I then use in the next campaign that also has the Arctoboulettes in it also has an encounter in it 
where a local treant has become corrupted by madness in the area um, named Brightleaf, and they have to cure his madness caused by the dark demon lord Gratz. And so not only were there two like perfect Arctobulette connections there, there's also a connection of like, I have a reason to put the Psy Squatch in both episodes. Hey. <laughs> so th- this is love the that thing. Love Squatch. Yeah, I do love to use the Psy Squatch. It's just like wild to me as well. Is that's like when I happen to choose an Arctopus thing, it's like, oh, and here's a perfect Psy Squatch encounter as well. Um, so they encounter the Arctobulette and then they counter the Psy Squatch. Um, and this is just sort of like, they've already run into the messenger that was traveling between the Nightside Eclipse, uh, shipwrecks. And so that messenger basically had like maps on him to show where the shipwrecks were. And so now they just have to like go to where the shipwreck is. And so they run into uh, the Arctobulette and the Sasquatch on their way to a shipwreck. Uh, when they finally get there, uh, they discover that the Nightside Eclipse have employed two forces to sort of like bolster their situation in their fortified shipwreck. One is that they have hired a company of orc mercenaries. And these I just took directly out of the uh, module because I thought it was a really cool idea. This orc mercenary company is called the Burning Banner. And their thing is that they uh, they have like a, a standard that they bring out, but there's no flag on it. They just set it on fire. It's the Burning <laughs> Banner orcs. It's fucking cool, man. That's awesome. Um, I like that detail. <laughs> So there's, they there's no flag on. They just bring it out and they set it on fire. Yeah, and they're the burning banner. Their their flag is fire. It's dope. Um, That's awesome. And then also, this is a really funny one. So, uh, paratons. Do you know paratons? Paratons. Like those are those fancy exercise bikes, right? No, these are like <laughs> these are like uh, hippogriffs, but they're reindeer. Cool. No, I never heard of them. Paraton. It's like something from like uh, mythology I'm, or something. I'm looking this up. Well, yeah. Paraton. Paraton. See, I know pa- Paragon. No, no, no. Paraton. There's even, there's a Wikipedia page. The Paraton is a mythological hybrid animal combining the physical features of a stag and a bird. Uh, first named by George Louis Borges in his 1957 book of imaginary beings using a supposedly long lost medieval manuscript as a source. And this has remained in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, these things... So I'm a bit disappointed that you don't have any frame of reference for this because it means that I have to represent these things like based on my knowledge of them. And like, I don't know what their deal is. They're so fucking weird. They, they have this like lore about like, um, evil hearts or something. Uh, okay. Okay. Like I'll, I'll, I'm finding this on uh, Forgotten Realms uh, Encyclopedia. Um, 
Peritons were twisted and depraved magical creatures that appeared to be a cross between a giant eagle and a demonic-looking fang-toothed stag. They were known and feared for tearing the beating hearts from their victims' chests. Like, where'd this thing come from? Who came up with this, like, crazy killer air moose? Like... Uh the George, George Louis Borges. I guess, right? but like, how did it catch on? It's just like, it, it has such like a weird kind of like, the whole thing about tearing out hearts, like the, I remember reading the write-up in 5e um, and, and thinking that like, it had sort of like a weird like gothic vibe to it, but it's, it's so bizarre to me. It's like, it's like um, the idea of a hippogriff, but somebody decided that it was like evil. And I'm like, where did that come from? Where where did you, where'd one idea come into the other? I don't know. I don't see the lineage here at all. You know, with certain things, you can really follow the lineage through mythology of like rocks and giant eagles. You know, yeah, like and, and griffins well, and stuff. This thing comes out of nowhere, as far as I can tell. I don't know that there is I'm going to so for starters I'm going to have to ask Caitlin about this because she has her degree in folklore studies. She's the Maybe one she, I need to this is the thing. I need yeah. to do this podcast with Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I will ask her uh, about it but off the top of my head it it doesn't seem as weird as it seems to you because this strikes me as just another example of one of those mythological creatures that feels like a mashup. Like you think of like a, like a manticore, right? Where it's like, it's a lion, but it's also got the the head of a goat sticking out of it. No, uh, I'm thinking of a chimera. Yes. Is it a chimera? Yeah. Yeah, It's it's got the head of a lion. It's also got the head of a goat. And then it's got like the, I think the tail of a scorpion or is its tail a snake? I can't remember. See, it's not that that perplexes me. Like, the idea of Periton... Like, it's a weird name for it, but the idea of stag plus bird is, like, okay. It's the idea that somebody imposed, like, a weird sort of malevolence on this creature. Like, there's nothing about <laughs> flying stag that suggests to me that it's, like, this heart-seeking creature of evil. <laughs> yeah, you have to sort of assume that, that aspect of it comes from the eagle part of it right like the bird of prey part of it must be the part where where they it feels like the sort of thing that must have come from a story somewhere and i just don't know i'm missing the frame of reference here it's like you know in in other with other creatures with mythology or something i can like accept that it does a certain thing just because it did that in the myth you know um but this thing it's like i don't know who's been telling stories about this thing boy yeah now that i'm now that i'm reading on uh wikipedia about the mythology of it this really is a a complex and unusual creature Mm -hmm. uh apparently lived on atlantis until Atlantis sank, it casts the shadow of a man until it kills one. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's another one. That's what what gave me such that gothic vibe, you know? Like, it has yeah. this, like, horror vibe to it. Uh, a Sibyl once prophesied, a prophecy that the Peritans would lead to the downfall of Rome. And 
Uh, the word is given as perishio in Spanish, so the presumptive Latin origin would be perishius, which is the Latin name of the fourth month of the Macedonian calendar. But, <laughs> that but, is so weird. But hold on. The Peroton was first named by George Luis Borges in 1957. So this is all just like weird, retroactive, made up Nazi, not, not nonsense. Well, as far as the name goes, yes. But at least one depiction of the Peroton, namely on the late medieval battle standard of the Dukes of Bourbon, predates Borges' description. So he was clearly not the inventor and its exact origins remain unclear. What the hell? Well, thanks, Wikipedia, but yeah, what the hell? Exactly. So we've gone on this whole paraton tangent. Just a paratangent? So, <laughs> just so I can just so I can say when I when this module told me that there were paratons in it, I literally had no idea what it was telling me. I thought it meant some kind of like pterodactyl dinosaur. Oh, like and, a pterodon. Yeah, and so um, that's what I put in my adventure. I <laughs> figured out, like, too late, I think, at some point. Like, at some point, I realized what they actually were, and I was like, what the fuck? And uh, at that point, I had already designed this campaign to be something else. So for the something else, in my adventure, I created something called a pterodax, which is basically a type of like vicious uh, pterodactyl, um, like guard drake sort of thing. It's pretty badass and, too. Um, the name, funnily, funny enough, is uh, from Pterodax. Do you ever watch uh, the MTV Spider-Man that was cell shaded? Oh yeah, the was it Ultimate Spider-Man that series? I don't know. It's the one that had R Rob Zombie was the voice of Doc Connors. I think uh, that's the Ultimate Spider-Man series, but I know the one you mean. Or I think I'm, I think it might be the new Spider-Man or something. Um, mm. Whatever the case, uh, one of the episodes of that, he fights like a, a team of like jetpack equipped like power armor equipped terrorists that called themselves pterodax and uh <laughs> they were doing some sort of hostage situation or something but i don't know for some reason that name stayed with me and so i kept the name pterodax um but yeah so basically i had this shipwreck i had the idea that the knights at eclipse or these these orc mercenaries rather had brought these uh flying beasts these pterodax things as like uh tamed beasts that they were using as basically like their alarm system so the players get to this shipwreck and there's a burning banner planted outside and and like orc guards patrolling around this fortified shipwreck but then in the sky above there are these like dinosaur things circling these like um reptilian birds circling and like watching for anyone any intruders so the orcs can just like call down these pterodacts if they uh spot any enemies um the players were actually uh i feel like they didn't they didn't do a good job at all of like bypassing the security i think they just like 
rushed the orcs, fought the pterodaxes, <laughs> fought their way up the shipwreck. And this is like, this is an a, a adventure or mission or op design that I have used. Even like you can see this design I've used um, in. Uh, is it Sunsmoke on the Water? The the adventure that I did, the 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 module that I put out with Goblin Ink Press that was yeah. uh, about like um, there's the different sailing encounters and stuff. That one climaxes in a fight with uh, a a ship that is like sort of lodged in the ice. But the idea is that like the hull has been broken open so that the players get in on the lowest level and then fight their way up the ship. It's it's funny because it's like ships are not designed to be that kind of level, basically. But for some reason, they just automatically become that for me is like, yeah, you fight your way from the bottom to the top. Uh, and I, I just like have a contrivance for how that works every time. I guess it makes sense with a shipwreck. Um, so whatever the case, that's basically what they do is the players end up fighting their way up the, sh- up the decks of the shipwreck, fighting their way through orc mercenaries, uh, battling with these reptilian birds, the pterodax, uh, as they are assaulting it, um, below decks, the, uh, nightside eclipse and the orcs have actually, they have, uh, chained up hellhounds and wargs. And so, in addition to, like, a force of orc mercenaries, there's all these, like, uh, big beasts that the orcs release once the players are in the shipwreck so that suddenly they're contending with these huge ravenous monsters within the deck and really, like, closed in on all sides. But then they fought their way up to the, up to the deck, uh, on, onto the deck of the ship, where they faced um, a vampire who we've actually encountered before in the previous campaign. But this time, we're going to take him out for real. This vampire is by the name of Lokash. He's one of those big, oh, gray, yeah. uh, you know, Mongol from Mulan-looking vampires. Big, I gray, muscly dude. Got a big sword, got his helmet. Yeah, yeah. And he's on the deck. He's got a pterodax. He's got a hellhound. He's got his orcs guarding him. Um, and then this is the thing is that the players, they're fighting this vampire, but then the real trick is that they have to signal for, um, basically a big artillery piece has been constructed that is going to launch a crimson chamber onto the deck of the ship. It's going to shoot onto the lodge of the ship, uh, deck of the ship, and they're going to push this vampire into the tank. And then they're going to lock him up and he's going to be the first new prisoner of the Crimson Chambers. And uh, when they called in this sort of like uh, Crimson pod artillery strike, I had a random D20 roll. And depending on the results, there was the possibility that it could like smash through the first level and end up on the middle level of the ship or it could smash all the way through the bottom that sort of thing or it could miss the ship entirely and they have to go over to get it but um they rolled a nat 20 and so it was a direct hit lodged right in the top deck of the ship and they pushed that vampire they beat the shit out of that vampire knocked him into the tank sealed him up and uh yeah that was operation time husk nice. new prisoner for the new crimson <laughs> chambers 
Cool. And then I like afterwards, where this is all going. Uh, Chessie and Dax went dating on an extra planar scale. They all went on all these dates all across all these different uh, wacky Aww. different planes and stuff. <laughs> That's cool. I like that. Uh, another note about the Periton, which I've con- the Periton Periton, which I've continued reading up on. Um, when I saw the artist's impression of it on Wikipedia, it occurred to me that I, I there was something familiar about this creature, and I'll tell you why. It's because the Periton is one of the monsters in the Monsters and Animals supplement for the Palladium Fantasy role-playing game, a supplement that I own, but in this case, the creature is depicted as just a winged deer. So that was what was tickling my brain. I was like, oh yeah, okay. I, I have encountered these things in one of my books before, but depicted very differently. So, two quality adventure episodes, and then yeah. on to the tavern, I guess it is. Tavern time. Tavern time. Should I go Man. first? I got a short one. Yeah, I, I don't have much really planned. I my, Mine is kind of theoretical. Mine is just like, basically, you know, I pitched that vampire vampire princes campaign thing, remember? Right. But and then the thing is though, you know, I'd uh I'd done that episode where I talked about Scion and Scion like uh the World War II supplement for Scion, so like what the gods are up to during World War II. And all of this kind of brought me to the idea of like It'd be really cool to do a Scion game where you it was like one of those mythological tales where like you are simultaneously the child of the god, but you are also like the divine king of a of a kingdom or something. Like it'd be really cool to do that vampire princes campaign, but in the Scion context and have each character, each player character basically be a representative from their kingdom and their culture that is like, like you could basically be sort of like, you could be uh, a Roman emperor who has like all the powers of like the, the Roman gods on your side. And then someone else is playing like a Pharaoh who has all the powers of the Egyptian gods on their side. And they've all got like lesser scions that are serving them that serve each of like the gods in their pantheon. That's like, this is basically the direction that I want to take that Vampire Princes campaign or that Vampire Kings campaign is like have the have a player from each pantheon that is then like so powerful that they are like a divine emperor or king or something. That would be really neat. I've never played any game where characters were sort of at that level of power and authority. So that would be really interesting to explore having the the players in roles like that. I mean, the cool thing is that like, you know, I, I went through the, the vampire Kings campaign design on the show and like, it's all basically written out there for you. It's like, here's how you do it. You had, you would probably, with Scion, with this Scion Lords idea, as I've been calling it, I think the way you could do it is 
you know, because in, in the Vampire Kings thing, it says you should create uh, your, like, most important underlings, basically, so that you can play out scenes with those characters. But um, it doesn't really give you uh, a strict layout of, like, how many of those characters to make. Whereas I think in Scion Lords, you actually could use the guideline of, like, okay, for each god in the pantheon that I am the representative of, I should have one sort of helper or retainer or something who identifies with one of those gods. So it's like if you are the Roman emperor character, you then have like an NPC character that you take control of sometimes who is like your uh, lord of war. Like and like Avatar. He, he's the, well... Well, I was thinking like you would have your main guy, but then you'd also have like your war chief is uh, the representative of Ares, basically. And then you would have like a head of sciences and that's like the representative of Athena. And you like you would create these characters based on what the gods were in your pantheon, basically. So then you have the, the Pharaoh character creates an NPC for each god in the Egyptian pantheon. And it's like, depending what the scene calls for, it's like, all right, I will send this underling. And then the whole time you've got like this sort of like politics brewing, both between the gods behind the scenes for each player as they choose which, like which gods to use. And then each one is like sort of representing their pantheon in the greater scale of like the geopolitical uh, scope of the world. That is super cool. It's like it is like one part Crusader Kings and one part Clash of the Titans or something. Yeah, that's what I had in mind, basically. Take that. That's really like, neat. It's funny because the Vampire Kings idea has sort of an analog in a mod for Crusader Kings 3 called uh, Prince of Darkness, where it's Crusader Kings, but you play as a vampire and like they have made it so that yeah, like, you'd mention that your portrait turns into like a Nosferatu guy. And the idea is like your character doesn't have you have an infinite lifespan, basically, but you're running the world from the shadows. And so you're like playing Crusader Kings at another stage of removal where you are also running the vampire thing that is like beyond the sort of mortality of the leaders in the Crusader Kings game. And so like that's what really inspired me to like do the scion version of what that is to vampire kings is like um do a crusader kings game but instead like the emperors are actually representing the gods and you bring in that sort of like whole uh mythological aspect to it that's awesome that's a really creative idea for a campaign setting and just the way to run it the idea of them sort of taking control of different like characters within their court. I could see that opening up a lot of possibilities for role playing and you could even create as a player in that you could even create some really fun sort of bits of intrigue where you like conspire against your own other characters in different ways. I think I was actually thinking that like if the player wasn't doing that naturally i think that would be like the main job of the dungeon master is like each resource each like npc resource that you tap as a character it's like oh i'm gonna call on my 
war marshal for this situation and have my uh, general, who is the son of Ares, marshal all my armies. But then as the DM, I'm like, okay, well, uh, your child of Aphrodite is not going to be fond of that. She's going to notice that you didn't go to her for advice. And like, so I'd be running that sort of those machinations as well. Um, and it'd be sort of like a large, like sort of uh, collaborative cast of characters by the end of it, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, and you can also you could also set it up so that there's uh, there are like mechanical motivations to create strife between the different characters that one player controls. Like, you know, any I can't think of something like concrete, but the idea that like there is a limited resource of something. So if one of the characters uses up a lot of that resource, it is no longer available to a different character who might then be inspired to sort of exact revenge upon the first. I mean, this is taking me right back to civilization two, where you got the board of counselors and, uh, right. The, the popularity counselor is Elvis every incarnation <laughs> <laughs> or, or um, even something like, um, the, uh, uh, King of dragon pass is another one where you've got, yeah. Like a, a whole council of different characters that you have to sort of keep happy and you listen to different members of the council at different times and their interpersonal strife between them. The other thing I would say about this game idea is that I think that it brought it like, so I have a problem like, like there's my obvious problem with the idea that for the new edition of Scion, we should make it four books instead of three books and break it up even more. There's like, obviously I don't like that because it's like, there's no reason to make people buy another book to add, just to add another tier below that is like less powerful. But even beyond that, I think what this idea um, made me realize is I think that they should be taking the scope of Scion as a game in a wholly different direction. They shouldn't be breaking down the levels of Scion so that they're looking at more granular levels of power, like uh, with the fourth book they were talking about, where you'd have a, a sort of period before you come into your powers. What I think really is like, with this idea of like the the Scion Lords, where it's like each player represents a whole pantheon, is it um, really highlights the potential of the game um to explore even more pantheons is the thing is like this is this was one of the great potentials that was left unexplored with the first edition of scion is like they were constantly coming up with ideas for new mythologies to bring into scion like they never i don't think they ever finally created the slavic pantheon but they did eventually introduce a persian one um a a hindu one uh celestial bureaucracy for china like that was sort of the the direction that it seemed that um scion was going to expand into endlessly and i think that's the direction that they should be heading in because when you play this scion scion lords idea then the idea becomes is like ooh what would be a cool culture for me to like have my player be the representative of like i could be like a a Tamil king who like comes out and leads like a special sect of like a the Indian pantheon or something. That'd be cool. It's a really neat idea too. Man, we got to get you working with uh with White Wolf. Man. 
It was an idea. <laughs> what do you got for us, McGill? Uh, just a few things, but first, I want to thank you, Tom. I ran the Foulness Beneath Mullmaster Adventures League module, my adaptation of it for my players, and it was perfect. And what was pretty, what was kind of cool about it was, uh, you know, I read through the module and uh, I could see all of the elements that you used in the adventure that I played in uh, for uh, Ashes Against the Grain. But obviously it was quite different from what was in there. You yeah. sort of took like key pieces of it and adapted it. And I wound up doing the same thing where I took these key elements of it and then just sort of, you know, mixed and matched to fit it into my campaign thing. So I did include it's the, the flumps. Uh, I just, I, I just want to say that it's funny. It's too bad that we can't put the listener through this experience of like, playing an adventure, reading the module that it was based on and seeing that like you have basically like through that experience, you've seen exactly what I do when I do all of these operations. Like you have seen through the matrix now to my process, yeah, basically. I see, the, I see the code, but it's also, I think just all of this speaks to the versatility of D and D and, Something that we have definitely talked about on this show. I think and it also like I've... it highlights when these modules are really good. Like Falas yeah. Beneath Molemaster is a good module, and I can prove it because you can run it three different ways and have it run perfectly every time. Like... Exactly, and uh, I also just think that this this speaks to the one of the very things that we champion, which is you know don't be afraid to like reskin things take you know what you need from a module and discard the rest that's what all these resources are there for as as dms uh, is for you to get your inspiration i was drained of inspiration and tom sent uh, tom sent me towards this module to, to seek out and uh after reading it i was inspired again i was like i know a perfect way to fit this into the campaign that i'm running because in the campaign that i'm running one of the ideas that i wanted to introduce was that uh creatures from the underdark are coming up through a fissure underneath the city where it's could not place. be more perfect it is ideal and uh i also wanted to introduce the idea that unbeknownst to the players there was an entrance to the Underdark in the cellar of the very building that they were calling their base of operations, and they had not discovered it yet. And Ooh, I like uh, that. And I had planted that idea from the beginning. I was just waiting for one of them to explore the cellar more, because they knew there was a cellar, and they'd been down there once, but they hadn't really explored it all that much. They sort of peeked down there. So Do you ever, I was play, waiting. Uh, do you ever play Pillars of Eternity? Yes. Because that has the whole thing where you get your keep and then it turns out there's like 20 levels of dungeon beneath your keep. And exactly. every, every level you go down, you realize there's a giant statue under your keep that like <laughs> the fist is blowing through the first, like the top level. And then you get down to his head and then you get all the way down to his feet. Yep. Crazy well, in stuff. this case, it is an entrance to the Underdark that I wanted because I I've been doing these things where like drow assassins have been turning up in this manor house that the players call home, 
but they can ne they've never been able to figure out like how they're getting in or sneaking past anybody and the answer is they they already have like a back entrance into the very cellar beneath their feet Man, you're also but, really set up for the other adventures that I sent you. Like that writhing in the dark one is like perfectly meant for this. Oh, believe me, the next phase of this is going to involve the players going into the Underdark. But uh, so I read through uh, Foulness Beneath Molemaster and uh, I did my own riff on it where the players, the player, it was perfect too because the players had already been talking about going to visit the city watch and uh, the city watch of this town was just this like skeleton crew because they don't have a lot of military might at their disposal. So the players go and talk to the captain of the city watch and the captain's like, we're really short-handed right now. I could sure use your help in investigating this thing. And it's the, the corpse of the flump from the module. And uh, just like when the church of Joaquin said, hey, you guys got to check out this thing that's making this bad smell. That's, that's right. Except in that case, it was a dead Kuotoa. Um but yeah, so the ultimately the the rest of it that I ran is I, I found a great sewer map and uh, had them explore the sewers and they encountered some Lacedons and then they encountered the cult of Kuotoa in mind. They did not befriend the cult of the Kuotoa. They fought the cult of the Kuotoa. And I wanted to throw in a big monster that the Kuotoa were worshipping as a god, of course. Nice. And, uh, Rather, the, the players were too low level for it to be the obvious one, which would be an Abeleth. So instead, I dug up this <laughs> demon from the Fiend Folio called the Skulvin, which is a challenge rating four creature, and it was perfect. It was a great little adventure. Uh, the, the challenge rating wound up being you know what I balanced. You know what I would have reached for in a pinch uh, for that what? monster if I What's was that? you? Was that... Uh... That demonic Odiug from the the Asmodean knot. Oh, the outcast king. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe I'll throw him in when they go into the underdark. Sewer boy. That'd be perfect. Sewer boy but, getting worshipped by fish. But wound, what wound up happening is there's a warlock in the party, and they killed the Skulvin. They killed all the Kuotoa except one, and the last one, the warlock, like used his his charm magic and influence on it to convince this Kuotoa that he was a god and the Kuotoa should really be worshipping him. And then when he, when the Kuotoa sort of turned over to worshipping the warlock, the warlock was like, now show me where, how you got down here. Because everybody in the party at this point had realized that the creatures they were fighting were all creatures from the Underdark. And they're like, how did they get here? So the Kuotoa le leads the party to this fissure in the wall of the sewer and they crawl through the fissure down this tunnel and then the tunnel comes to this fork and one path on the fork sort of leads upwards and the other leads downwards and so out of curiosity they follow the path that leads upwards and they come out right in the cellar of their manor and that's where i ended the adventure ah. big reveal and it was it was great so thank you tom that was perfect that was exactly what it what i needed for that adventure at that time it was awesome i can't wait to go through the other like writhing in the dark i can't wait to look up that one and run it for my players too because sounds like it's a perfect fit for what's to come but what i brought to the tavern so speaking of sewer maps i found this great sewer map and since i've been using roll 20 to run my adventures this campaign is the first campaign i've ever used roll 24 uh, i've gotten big into maps because 
in person, maps are kind of a pain in the ass. Like you, you gotta print them out big if you wanna use miniatures on them. You gotta have miniatures for them. Uh, or you gotta have like a big whiteboard or something. It's, it's difficult using maps in person. No, you without... can use in a pinch instead of miniatures. Bottle caps. Bottle caps or dice, you know, is another one. Coins. But, but I really like that Roll20 makes it like so easy to have tokens for your characters and you can just use any map that you find online. You can scale it. You can turn off the grid if you need to, if there's already a grid on there. some great maps for my superheroes game. Yeah. So, so I'm loving just being able to work with maps really easily for the first time in like my career as a DM uh, because they're always the thing that I find is missing from my in-person D&D games because I love maps, but they are so hard to use, like, especially if you're playing like multiple times a month, you're going to spend a small fortune printing out these big maps for your players and maybe they'll only use them once. But Roll20 makes it super easy. You just find a map or make one, throw it on there, and then, hey, no problem. It's not like you wasted a bunch of time putting it together for it to only be used in one session. Uh, easy come, easy go, and you can even on Roll20 archive that map for later use. So uh, I am coming to the tavern this time with a bunch of map resources that I've been using for all these adventures because I'm just loving it. I've already talked about Dungeon Draft, which I got, uh, that I've been using to create a few maps. Super handy, but if you don't want to make your own, uh, here are a few handy places to find them. Uh, I have already mentioned a website called Dyson's Dodecahedron, uh, which is just, this is a guy's, you know, personal site. He's got a Patreon, uh, obviously loves RPGs, and he's got loads of maps on here for free that you can have, and they are all awesome. I've used a number of them so far. That's at DysonLogos.blog, Dyson's Dodecahedron. Uh, there's another... It seems like there are an awful lot of uh, these creators who just love RPGs and just make RPG maps, mostly fantasy. And uh, so this other one is Smitchell Maps, S-M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L maps.com. Loads of cool free maps and assets on here too. Uh, uh, Smitchell Maps also provides like assets like uh, tokens uh, for Roll20. You can find a lot of free stuff on here. Some of the, the Smitchell maps are really cool because they give you the overhead look and then on the side they give you like an isometric view or like some artwork of what the building looks like from ground level, like, you know, if you were approaching it by foot. Uh, so really just a lot of awesome resources at Smitchell maps. And then there are also two subreddits that are very similar, but also great. Uh, there is... Uh, reddit.com slash r slash dnd maps which is just endless endless dnd maps world maps isometric maps like artistic maps battle maps top down sideways uh just anything you could want you can find here uh it's one of the things that i love that i had never even thought about doing before that i discovered on the dnd maps subreddit are phased battle maps so, like, the coolest one that I found recently is an airship crashing into the ocean as a phased battle map. So it's a series of five maps, uh, top down, the deck of this airship, and each map 
has more damage on the airship until the last one is like the wreck of the airship as it crashes into the ground. I love the idea of running like a roll 20 game and having these different phases of the map lined up so that as the airship is going down, you can keep increasing the dread as suddenly like fires break out on the deck and you can see the ground coming closer every time the map updates. There are also like, phases. Uh... When I was running uh, Crimes Against the Faith, uh, you could just see all the lines that I had drawn just like disappearing as you blow up parts of the settlement. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's also a really cool phased battle map on here that I might use part of for uh, an upcoming adventure. Uh, what's it called? The one, the one that you told me about with the uh, where the climax is a, a wagon chase. Bane um, of the Tradeways. Bane of the Tradeways. There is a phased map here that is a wagon chase. So, nice. you know, it's a wagon chase. And then you see other wagons passing by on either sides of the road. You see the buildings passing and changing. It really gives you like this sense of movement that, that, that goes uh, with the... That adventure has good system for uh, like running the wagon chase as well. Has a awesome. lot of good, good rules built in there. Anyway, I highly recommend checking out r slash D&D maps on Reddit. It's a fantastic subreddit resource. And then similarly is r slash battle maps, which is a very similar resource. And there's a lot of cross posting between them. But what battle maps offers that D&D maps doesn't is also like futuristic maps, cyberpunk maps, uh, a lot more world maps here, and uh, just a lot of interesting ones for like, city-based campaigns, modern campaigns, steampunk campaigns. So if uh, if you want some cool maps for stuff other than D&D, &D, you can find it on r slash battle maps. Oh, and one last thing I want to mention is there is a user on uh, both of these, but predominantly on D&D uh, &D maps. I'm trying to find an example here to see if I can. Uh, here, uh, the user is Snoo Tangerines uh, 5710, who has been going through the Curse of Strahd campaign and creating updated maps for every location from Curse of Strahd. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Just the idea that, like, and it's it's happened as well. Like, remember I talked about um, that uh, short adventure module, Bad Apples. So... Bad Apples has a pretty basic map included, but I searched online and found someone did a really beautiful updated map for it, and I used that one instead. So it seems like out there, and especially in these subreddits, if you have a, an adventure module and you're not too content with the map, you can probably find an updated version or something very similar in these subreddits. Really, Someone really useful resource. Someone update the damn maze map from Dark Pyramid of Sorcerer's Isle. I wonder if it's out there, Dark Pyramid. You know what? I'm going to look for it after we're done. Well, speaking of being done, are you all done? I think we're done. I'm done. So this was... June 8th, 2021, episode 64, Operation Time Husk, session four of the Destiny of Istis. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, see our updates and all that, that's on Facebook, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. Uh, and also, we got some cool show notes for this one. I at least have my side on map. 
of Operation Time Husk, which has uh, just like a flat line thing at the top where they meet the Sasquatch and stuff. And then most of the map is the big old shipwreck. You see it, McGill? It's in our Discord chat here. You see it? Oh, I see, see it. that little doodle of the Sasquatch and everything. And then also included is a picture, because around this time, I created a pretty decent little doodles of uh, the party and a little list of all their magic items that they had equipped at the time. So uh, there's a little rundown of the party, as well as some doodles of various uh, spells and stuff that will be included in this one. And a gun. So check that out on uh, comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. And uh, I think that's all for us. So don't steal. It's haunted. Level up your characters and get that ding. Not me.